Hello, my name is Chiara Giorgetti and I'm a professor of law at Richmond Law School and a senior fellow at the International Claim and Reparation Center at Columbia Law School. It is a pleasure and an honor to be here today for the first lesson of this mini-series on international investment law. In this lecture, I will give a short historical introduction to international investment law and will situate international investment law within the larger field of international law. I will then explore two of the main tenets of international investment law, and namely, what is a foreign investment and what is a foreign investor. In other words, I will address the question of to whom and to what does international investment law apply. In lecture two, I will then explore some of the substantive principles that characterize international investment law. In lecture three, I will focus on the unique dispute resolution mechanism that exists in international investment law, and namely, international investment arbitration. In Lecture 4, I will then talk about some of the criticism that international investment law and ISDS have faced recently and talk about the ongoing reform process. So, as an introduction, what is international investment law? What is a foreign investor and what is a foreign investment? International investment law, or IIL, is part of international economic law, which in turn is part of public international law. It covers and regulates foreign investments international rules on the protection of foreign-owned property, and particularly, what are the rules that apply in the context of international investments. IIL looks at what obligations, and to a smaller extent, as we will see, the rights of host states, so those states that receive investments, have vis-à-vis -vis foreign investors. And the reciprocal obligation of the home state and rights, and to a smaller extent, the obligations of investors vis-à-vis -vis the host state. IIL, the law of foreign investment, is one of the oldest branches of international law, but it remained relatively underdeveloped until the latter part of the 20th century, growing in step with globalization and thus with intense interconnection of people and markets and the mobility of people and capital around the world. International investment law's origin can really be traced further back in history, as communities have always engaged in commerce and trade and have historically allowed certain commercial privileges and fiscal exemptions to attract trade and granted certain minimum standards to foreign nationals. It then developed substantially in the 17th century through foreign direct investment, or FDI, regimes that were governed by customer international law. The system then witnessed dramatic changes in post-World War II world, globalization, increased FDI, development of new political and economic order with increased independence of new state, all led to substantial transformations in international law and IIL also. In fact, post-World War II, international investment grew quad quadrupled between 1990 and 2000. With these developments, it became important to regulate IIL and address its underlying concept. The need for a broad organizational framework for a post-war economy led to the development of the Havana Center for International Trade Organization in 1948, which was the first attempt to formulate international principles concerning FDI. The Havana Center recognized the necessity and importance of international investments for their great value in promoting economic development and reconstruction and the consequent social progress. And also, the international flow of capital as I quote, will be stimulated to the extent that members afford nationals of other countries opportunities for investment and security for existing and future investments. Article 12 specifically called upon states to enter into bilateral and multilateral agreements relating to the opportunities and security for investment. 
and specifically recognize that the interests of members whose nationals are in a position to provide capital for international investment and of members who desire to obtain this, the use of such capital to promote their economic development or reconstruction may be promoted if such members enter into bilateral or multilateral agreements relating to the opportunities and security for investment, which the members themselves are then prepared to offer any limitations which they are prepared to accept. This really already highlights the main tension that exists in international investment law between the interest of capital exporting countries and capital importing countries. In the 1950s and 60s, then the GA, the General Assembly of the United Nations, adopted annually a resolution on permanent sovereignty over natural resources. And in 1962, the UN General Assembly passed Resolution 1803, which established the principle of permanent sovereignty over natural resources and stated the foreign investment agreements concluded by a government must be observed in good faith with reference to international law. In 1974, then, the United Nations General Assembly adopted the Declaration <clears throat> for the Establishment of a New International Economic Order and its accompanying program of action of, of May 1, 1974. International investment law as we know it today truly appeared with the growth of investment protection treaties. The bilateral investment treaties, or BIT, are drafted to address specific circumstances that that of an investor of one state locating assets in the territory of another state. Historically, most investment treaties have been negotiated bilaterally, as I said, bilateral investment treaties, or BITs. Germany was the first country to develop a program for a series of bilateral agreements aimed at protecting its nationals' investment in foreign countries. It signed its first bilateral investment treaty with Pakistan in 1959, which entered then into force in 1962. Other European countries followed the German example. Switzerland concluded its first BIT with Tunisia in 1961, and France entered into its first agreement in 1972 also with Tunisia. The US BIT initiative began in 1977, shifting from its previous approach of concluding friendship, commerce, and navigation treaties. The US has then developed several model BITs, which it uses to negotiate with many countries. Most of the countries in the world are not participants to the IIL and BITs. 500 BITs were signed in 19, by 1990, but for the year 2000, there were over 2,000 BITs. This is not the prerogative only of Western European countries. China has signed over 100 BITs and India 71. And in fact, BITs, um, BITs cover over 180 countries. The United Nations Conference on Trade and Development, UNCTAD, reports that more than almost 3,000 BITs have been signed and over 2,300 are now in force. More recently, Regional free trade agreements have also included comprehensive investment, <coughs> investment sections, including treaties like the North American Free Trade Agreement, or NAFTA, between the US, Canada, and Mexico, which more recently was renegotiated to become the USMCA, US-Mexico-Canada Agreement, the DR-CAFTA, a free trade agreement between the US, the Dominican Republic, and a group of Central American countries, was concluded in 2006 and the European Comprehensive Economic and Trade Agreement, also CETA, between the EU, European Union, and Canada. 
Another important example is a comprehensive and progressive agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, which includes many countries in the Pacific region. Special sectoral treaties have also been negotiated, chiefly the Energy Charter Treaty, or ECT, which relates mostly to energy cooperation and also includes a section on international investment. Today, IIL has developed to be an important and full-fledged subfield of public international law. This is not only few concepts of international custom. Indeed, the fact that IIL is rooted in public international law is evident when exploring the legal standards that characterize the discipline in which I will discuss more specifically in my second lecture. For example, questions of the legality of expropriation and the amount owned in case of expropriation, issues of fair and equitable treatment, which is rooted in the concept of due process and denial of justice, and the issue of minimum standard of treatment, which is also rooted in international customary law. As a specific discipline, IIL has come to relevance only more recently, and this mostly thanks to the surge of investor-state arbitration, starting in the late 90s, which will be the subject of Lecture 3. In particular, the fact that investors had direct access to international forums against a sovereign state was an important novelty. And plus, it also looked at all issues of public international law, including treaty interpretation, attribution of conduct to states, and the applicability of uh, circumstances precluding wrongfulness. As I just mentioned, international investment law is regulated largely by bilateral and regional treaties. This also means that it lacks a multilateral treaty that creates an overarching legal framework. The content of the substantive standards and other applicable provisions are found in almost 3,000 international agreements, as I, as I just mentioned. But the content of these treaties is relatively similar and often include similar basic principles, such as uh, protections against expropriation, uh, investor rights to a minimum standard of treatment, protections against arbitrary treatment. However, the lack of a generally applicable multilateral treaty also results in the lack of an international monitoring body. In addition to treaty negotiations, the application, clarification, and progressive interpretation of the core principles of international investment law is effectuated mostly by international arbitrary tribunals deciding investor-state disputes, and less often also by statement of treaty parties in relation to specific provisions in a treaty. Hence, the applicable legal framework for international investment uh, law essentially results from the synthesis and product of international investment treaties, whose goal is to attract foreign investment in the host state and to offer substantive protections to foreign investors. Having given a short historical introduction, I think we're now ready to delve a little more into some of the subst substance and the principles that characterize international investment law. Generally, BITs consist of three parts. The first defined terms used throughout the treaty, including the definition of investment and investor. The second part usually contains the substantive standard of protection offered to the foreign investor and its investment. The third part consists of a dispute resolution clause, which generally calls for a dispute to be resolved by binding international arbitration and other operative measures. As I said, IIL applies to foreign investors and protects their foreign investment. So let's focus on these two issues. 
The description of who are investors and what is an investment generally is contained in the initial part of BITs is key to the entire legal framework. International investment law is geared towards protecting, protecting foreign investment by, foreign part, by private parties and the investor. So who is a foreign investor? An investor is a private individual. Protections afforded to investors cover both natural and juridical persons, and this is very important. And the treaty protections are given only to foreign nationals, so only to nationals of the other treaty party. Investors must demonstrate that they have a nationality of a specific treaty party and not, and they do not possess the nationality of the host state, the receiving state. Nationality is particularly relevant in international investment law. And when non-national aliens invest in a foreign state, BITs, treaties of friendship, commerce and navigation, <coughs> and other international agreements, afford them certain specific protections. These usually include national treatment, the most favored nations, or MFN, uh, and a variety of other rights, including fair and equitable treatment, EFT, protection against illegal expropriation, prohibition of arbitrary and discriminatory treatment, and full protection and security. In addition, customary international law also grants aliens a minimum standard of treatment. Conversely, investment treaties might also exclude aliens from engaging in certain specific economic sectors, for example, telecommunication or natural resources, and investors may also be required to respect local law. Crucially, aliens' protection of their international investment law rights largely depends on their nationality, as I said. Thus, a state may espouse its nationalist right against another state in an international forum as a form of diplomatic protection, or nowadays more frequently, foreign investors may directly exercise their right under international law in an international forum against a host state. Most BITs and regional investment treaties include a definition of nationals to which the treaty terms apply. For example, the 1991 Argentina-US BIT defines national of a party as a natural person who is a national of a party under its applicable law. The more recent US-Uruguay BIT, which is based on the 2012 model BIT, is more specific. It defines an investor as a party or state enterprise thereof, or a national or an enterprise of a party that attempts to make, is making, or has made, an investment in the territory of the other party. BITs often include specific definitions for individual natural persons and corporate legal persons investors. For example, the Argentina-Italy BIT specifies that, and I quote, the term investor includes any natural or legal person of one contracting party who has affected or assumed the obligation to investments in the territory of the other contracting party. This includes a natural person means, with regard to either contracting party, to any natural person having the citizenship of that state in accordance with its law. Legal persons means, in relation to each of the contracting parties, any entity constituted in accordance with the legislation of one contracting party in the territory of that party, and by the latter recognized, such as public entities involved in economic activities, corporation or association, foundations, and irrespective of whether their liabilities are limited or not. Nationality rules are regulated domestically, and BIT conclude, include two distinct definitions, each applying to one of the signature parties. Thus, for example, again using the Argentina example, and this time the Argentina-UK, 
BIT defines an investor in respect of the UK as a, a natural person deriving their status as United Kingdom nationals from the law in force in the UK, and b, companies, corporations, firms, and associations incorporated or constituted under the law in force in any part of the U in any part of the UK or in any territory of which this agreement is extended in accordance with the provision of the uh, treaty itself. And then separately, in, this, in respect for Argentina as A, any natural person who is a national of the Republic of Argentina in accordance with this law or nationality, and B, any legal person constituted according to the laws and regulations of Argentina, or having a seat in the territory of the Republic of Argentina. So there are two issues to remember here. One is that there are two kinds of investors, juridical persons and physical persons. And then you have the international legal dimensions and the domestic law. And nationality is normally codified domestically. Additionally, certain BITs may also include residence or domicile requirements. For example, the Germany-Israel BIT defines an Israeli national as a person having permanent residence in Israel. Although nationality provisions are regulated domestically, however, when questions of nationality reach international tribunals and are necessarily central to their jurisdictional findings, tribunals routinely address and review the applications of domestic rules. Following the examples set by the PCIJ in nationality decrees issues in Tunis and Morocco and acquisition of the Polish nationality decisions, importantly, International arbitrary tribunals confirmed that their assessment of nationality is done independently. Thus, in reviewing domestic law, international arbitral tribunals look beyond the nationality claim of the investor or the state and decide independently issues of acquisition or loss of nationality. In Champion Trading versus Egypt, for example, an arbitral tribunal sorry, deciding on a claim arising out of the enactment of Egyptian laws in the mid-1990s in privatizing and liberalizing cotton trade, denied jurisdiction based on an Egypt-US BIT to the three individual claimants because they had unknowingly acquired Egyptian nationality at birth from their Egyptian father and therefore were not foreign investors in treaty provisions. The same reasoning was followed in other uh, arbitral tribunals, for example, in Sufraki versus UAE, applying the Italy-UAE BIT, and in Siag versus Egypt, applying the Italy-Egypt BIT. The issue is of particular relevance in situation of dual nationality, which is nowadays becoming increasingly important because it's more common. When confronted by claims from a dual national, generally international law practice by international courts and tribunal has historically rejected claims by claimants who also possessed the nationality of the respondent host state. Often, tribunals would adopt a dominant and effective nationality test, which was used in other contexts, for example, in the US-Italy conciliation commissions in the Merger and the Flagenheimer cases. The test was famously used, or maybe better misused, by the ICJ in the Nottebum, Nottebum case uh, versus Liechtenstein versus Guatemala. The test was so appropriately then used by the Iran-US Claims Tribunal, for example, in the precedent-setting decision in case 818, uh, the tribunal concluded that dominant effective nationality of the claimant would determine jurisdiction. And the tribunal then examined a claim of a dual US-Iranian national filed against Iran 
and examined all relevant factors, including, for example, habitual residence, center of interest, family ties, participation in public life, and other evidence of attachment to determine the dominant and effective nationality of a dual national. The tribunal concluded that as the dominant effective nationality of the claimant was the US, the US one, the tribunal itself had jurisdiction over the claims against Iran brought by US-Iranian dual national. The doctrine of dominant effective nationality has proven particularly useful in non-exit international uh, investment cases um, as a way to determine the nationality of an investor and thus determine treaty eligibility. Note, however, that the dominant and effective nationality doctrine is not applicable in ICSID proceedings, as we will see, where Article 25 of the ICSID Convention specifically bars claims from individuals holding the nationality of the host state. As a general rule, a claimant also needs to have the nationality of the state both at the time of the injury which originated the claim and at the date of the presentation of the claim. This continuous nationality rule is intended to avoid an abuse of diplomatic protection. Uh, the second question is the nationality of corporation. Principle of nationality also applies to corporation, of course. The nationality of corporation is usually of the state where it is incorporated or the base of its headquarters. As in the case for individuals, it pertains to each state to legislate on the nationality of corporations under their domestic law. This was specifically recognized by the ICJ in the Diallo case. The increasing variety of corporate ownership and the inter internationalization of business practice, however, means that the reality of the nationality of corporation is more nuanced and indeed complex. Issues to be considered are the nationality of the shareholders, piercing the corporate veil, and nationality of convenience. The ICJ examined the question of nationality of corporation in several instances to establish which state could validly exercise diplomatic protection on behalf of a corporation, including in the Barcelona Traction case, where it rejected a claim for brand from Belgium in representation of a majority shareholder of a company incorporated in Canada against Spain. International investment tribunals have, along the lines, of other international courts and tribunals generally adopted a strict interpretation of the applicable norm and have commonly declined to pierce the corporate veil. Thus, in order to determine the nationality of a corporate investor, arbitral tribunals have relied on the definitions contained in the applicable international instrument without examining more specifically the corporate structure or the nationality of the shareholders. For example, in Tokyo Stokales versus Ukraine, the tribunal, decided by majority, held it had jurisdiction over a claim against Ukraine brought by a company incorporated in Lithuania, but fully owned by Ukrainian investors. It rejected respondents' argument that the corporation was not, a genuine, had, was not a genuine entity of Lithuania in its request to pierce the corporate veil, and found that the claimant was an investor under the applicable treaties, which was consistent with modern BIT practice and satisfied the applicable norms. The arbitrators did not believe they should read into BIT's limitation not found in the text nor evident from negotiating history. Similarly, in another case, Saluka versus the Czech Republic, respondent asserted that claimant did not have any real and continuous link to the Netherlands, the country where it was incorporated. The tribunal spread some sympathy for the argument that a company which has no real connection with a state party to a BIT and which is in reality a mere shell company 
controlled by another company which is not constituted under the laws of the state should not be entitled to invoke the provisions of that treaty. However, in application of the terms in the relevant Netherlands, Czech Republic and Slovak Republic BITs, the tribunal found it could not impose a definition that it had not agreed upon and thus upheld its jurisdiction. The question of change of corporate nationality and when it is potentially abusive was specifically addressed more recently in Philip Morris Asia versus Australia. In the case, Philip Morris Asia brought a case against Australia under the Hong Kong-Australia BIT and related to certain plain packaging measures adopted by Australia. Australia argued that the Philip Morris Corporation had restructured its investment with a primary motivation of bringing a treaty claim using an entity from Hong Kong. And the tribunal agreed. It found that at the time of the restructuring, the dispute that materialized subsequently was foreseeable to the claimant, and that the such change in corporate structure therefore constituted an abuse of rights and denied jurisdiction. So this kind of explains what is an investor, both in terms of corporate investor and of physical in individual invest investor. The second question that we want to uh, address today is what is an investment? International investment uh, law cover foreign investment. So what is a foreign investment? We know generally that it's long-term, it has a risk, uh, and we know that the nature of the investment changes. Uh, it, it requires an initial capital and is very often provides for large projects. There's specific relationship with the host state and very often it includes or covers public goods, for example, privatization and other public goods. The initial provisions in treaties also include a definition of what an investment is and usually include a detailed enumeration of recognized investment activities. For example, the model US-US BIT provides an investment means every asset that an investor owns or controls directly or indirectly that has the characteristic of an investment, including such characteristic as the commitment of capital or other resources, the expectations or gain or profit, or the assumption of risk. Specifically, recognized forms of investment within the model US-BIT US include an enterprise, shares, stock, and other forms of equity participation in an enterprise, bonds, debentures, other debt instruments, and loans, futures, options, and other derivatives, uh, turnkey constructions, management, production, concession, revenue sharing, and other similar contracts, and more intellectual property rights, licensing, authorizations permits, and similar rights also conferred pursuant to the domestic law. It includes also other tangible or intangible, movable or immovable property and related property rights, such as leases, mortgages, liens, and pledges. Moreover, under an arbitration tribunal created Salini test, investment in addition to be made in the territory of the host country are also often required to incur a certain risk, a substantial commitment, monetary commitment, in a minimum duration and also provide a contribution to the development of the host country. The Salini test is frequently used by arbitral tribunals to assess the existence of an investment. Tribunals have found that any significant financial resource or transfer of know-how, equipment, and personnel would count as a contribution for the definition of investment. 
As for the duration of the investment, some tribunals have considered that an investment commitment of at least two years be considered sufficient. Most treaties provide that a shareholder in a company established in the host country would also qualify as an investment. So, for example, in AMT versus Zaire, the, the arbitral tribunal rejected uh, Zaire's argument that the US company AMT had not made an investment because it merely participated in the share capital of a Zairean company. But the arbitral tribunal held that investments via the share capital of a local entity were a covered investment and protected under the US Zaire BIT. Similarly, in CMS versus Argentina, the arbitral tribunal held the American minority shareholding in an Argentinian company qualified as a protected investment. The ICSI tribunals and other arbitral tribunals found that the following activities qualify as investment, including construction of an airport, construction and management of a hotel, service agreements providing pre-shipping inspections, service inspe inspection services, promissory notes, dredging uh, operations in the Suez Canal, and highway construction projects. Other investments include gold mining projects, ownership of solar panels, music festival companies, cement plant concession, uh, interest in two glass manufacturing companies, shareholding in food companies, and also minority shareholders in fertilizer company, ownership of a government promissory notes in FedEx versus Argentina. So really a variety of investment are recognized as protecting investment as foreign investment. An arbitral tribunal also confirmed that the foreign sovereign bonds qualified as an investment under the language of the applicable BIT in Abaclat versus Argentina. More recently, a tribunal in a case brought by Philip Morris against Uruguay recognized that intellectual property was a protected investment in the context of, the interna of international investment law. In a more recent case, Illy Lilly versus Canada, a unanimous tribunal recognized that patents of pharmaceutical compounds were also a protected investment. Conversely, an arbitral tribunal concluded that neither an ICC arbitral award nor a settlement agreement qualify as an investment for the purpose of the foreign investment provision. Knowing what qualifies as a foreign investment and who qualifies as a foreign investor is fundamental in understanding international investment law because only foreign investments and investors are protected by international investment law. Next time, in my next lecture, we will focus on the substantive principles that characterize international investment law. Thank you for your attention, and I hope you can join me for lecture two.